everyone and welcome to a special episode of Nomads because this is our fifth episode. Yay Connie, this is something we need to celebrate. I mean, are we almost halfway there? It's been a crazy wild ride but it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, and uh, thank you so much for all the support, people who have been listening and uh, giving us uh, some constructive criticisms, some brutal feedback as well. Uh, we are iterating based on the feedback. We are making some ma- major changes every episode, but uh, this kind of feels like a special episode because uh, we have uh, someone who who studied at both our alma mater. Uh, we have uh, with us Seep Vandy Silicato, uh, who's a senior product designer at Intuit Consumer Design Team. She did her undergrad in computer science at RIT. She did her master's in human computer interaction at uh, CMU and University of Portugal. Uh, she co-founded a company called Live Offline or Live Offline, which sounds very interesting. Uh, we are going to talk about it later. She's also a creator and co-driver of San Diego Design Trek, Trekking and Design. That's amazing. And also she's very passionate about mentoring young designers and girls in STEM, teaching about Design for Delight into its design framework, which we're also going to talk a little more about, and, and, and is an advocate for design for accessibility. Um, she's done a lot of public events and speeches, like at Intuit Fire, Fireside Chat at RIT. She's been a panelist at Grace Hopper Conference um, and also has done uh, design thinking workshops at places like University of California, San Diego, also at Berkeley, RIT, um, San Diego Design Week, and much more. And uh, to add to the mentoring stuff, there is this fun, fun anecdote I want to tell. So I was a total stranger. Everyone around me was questioning me, my choice of going into human-computer interaction back in 2017. I reached out to some random people who were studying HCI or who were in HCI back then. And Seep was one of them. She was kind enough to connect me with someone who was studying in East Coast. I was very rigid about going to East Coast rather than West Coast. I don't know why. So she actually helps random people out of her way to get into design. And I'm really proud of what I'm doing. I'm really loving what I'm what I'm doing. And uh, did we do okay, Seep? That's a long introduction. We understand. And uh, if, if we have uh, missed anything, please add to it and... Uh, Tell us what you do for fun as well. Well, thank you so much, Sunny and Connie. That was such a warm introduction. Just, I'm so humbled to be here. Uh, yeah, I actually completely forgot about that connection that we made, Sunny. I'm, I'm really glad that you shared that, actually. Um, it's doing things like that and hearing your story, you know, after you've pursued a master's in HCI at RIT, you know, one of my alma maters. Uh, just to yeah see you grow and then to give back to the community in this type of format is is just absolutely heartwarming. So thank you for having me on here. Um, just to add yeah, a few of my passions, I don't do design all the time. I mean, I do enjoy it, but I also love to dance. I love to solve puzzles and play board games. I mean, I, I love to be in the community and connect. That's probably one of my superpowers is just like being around people and, and connecting them. That's a little bit about me. Welcome. Thanks, everybody. This is awesome. You talked about a lot of like community aspects too. Um, and obviously through your work, you've done a lot of like outreach and advocacy, which is amazing to hear, especially because I think um, as HCI practitioners, we're moving out of the role of just like doing design work in the building, you know, in the workspace, in the room and going out and doing a lot more advocacy work, trying to tell people like what Sunny and I are doing here, which is like teaching people about HCI, but also what kind of value it brings to business and also helping these social issues. Um, so I'm kind of wondering too, since you love community so much, like how has COVID uh, been for you? How has that been? Are you doing okay? <laughs> yeah. That is a really great question. I mean, we are all managing, I would say, you know, as best as we can. It is certainly a difficult time. Um, we have a one-year-old, so battle, you know, balancing that. Whoa. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> balancing, you know, watching our daughter and delivering for our day job. We also, as, as Sunny mentioned, you know, we are co-founders of a startup to help actually people detach from their devices and technology. So, you know, there's a lot of tracks just moving simultaneously and we try to keep everything afloat um, as best as we can. And, you know, it, it is a blessing in disguise at times to be able to be so close with our families, um, but it certainly comes with its challenges. But overall, I mean, as far as the community goes, um, we are strong in San Diego. We we do what we can. We know that there are networks that had you know, preceded this pandemic and we we maintain our connections in the ways that we can and we are grateful that technology can be that catalyst for us 
So um, there are still many meetup groups that um, continue on through Zoom. And we actually just completed San Diego Design Week, uh, the very first design week ever, uh, completely virtual. We were not expecting that, but um, we saw a lot of wonderful um, people coming together, whether they're from universities or companies or just craftspeople sharing what they do and, and really teaching the world. Um, yeah, just their passion. And the best thing that came out of that is that you didn't have to be physically in San Diego to consume that material. It was great. Yeah, I attended San Diego Design Week uh, virtually. It was amazing. Uh, although I would love to be there personally. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, there are a lot of friends and family who stay in California uh, and uh, they are uh, going through the wildfires and everything as well. So uh, uh, we really thank you for doing this currently, you know, taking your time out of everything. Absolutely. And uh, Stay strong, California. Yeah. Yeah, stay strong, California. And uh, now, uh, since we are all advocates of uh, web accessibility and... Uh, Let's start with something basic. So uh, I want to understand what web accessibility is for people who, who do not understand it. Mm -hmm. And what are some day-to-day -day examples that you could give us of accessibility and how it could improve our lives, you know, ever since lockdown? Yeah, I, I would say web accessibility. I mean, I, I try to keep it pretty back to basics, kind of the root of the word of the access part of accessibility is really allowing multiple paths to experience something you know there are going to be there's going to be people that have a variety of abilities um, and we can't expect that a single design is going to solve for everyone and what i mean by that is for example if you have um, impairment with your vision or maybe it's um, you know from the rit community you may be you're well aware of the entid community um, just the, the deaf community, and you know, how do we deliver experiences where people who cannot see very well or people who can't hear very well um, can actually still consume experiences? And it's honestly, it's not even just um, loss of any of our senses. We can have temporary types of disabilities as well. Like I think about even just when you go outside and you are, you know, you're viewing an app on your phone and there's bright sunlight. You are in a in a less than par, you know, situation. So, um, exactly. Yeah. So how do you design for those types of experiences where you can consume it in multiple ways? So it's, it's giving variety of access points. Yeah. And, uh, I work, uh, on something close to deaf and hard of hearing community. So I try to solve their problems. So accessibility, uh, and uh, people with disabilities have uh, so many levels of it. Something that Seep mentioned right now, situational impairments or temporary impairments. There is physical, there is cognitive. And, uh, there is this wonderful quote I read and it could resonate with what we do. I think there are multiple ways that would lead to castle and the castle would be uh, use of technology here. And the multiple ways would be the different methodologies we come up with or different innovative solutions we come up with individuals uh, for, of all kinds. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's, you know, we have to think about the variety of people that are in the world. And we know how diverse our world is. Um, the more that we can bring in people who have diverse perspectives, um, the better the outcome would be as far as the design team is what I'm, I'm referring to is, um, you know, we can think about these um, outside perspectives that we probably wouldn't have, you know, had everybody on the team looked like us or, you know, came from the same experiences. So how can we really encourage a lot of that so that we can get ahead and really try to solve for that universal design? Mm -hmm. In terms of also just that's why diversity is so important, as you said before, right? It's important to have those representative voices, but also just because, like, I think, like, us as able-bodied, um, you know, um, able-bodied individuals and also, you know, like, like neurotypicals, I would say as well, um, it's really important that we give them the space also. We make it a safe and respectful environment for them to work here as well, because I think a big thing that also happens is just like we become the champions, though we ourselves are not the ones to experience it, right? Um, and so I think it's really important. I'm really happy and I'm like glad to hear that you highlighted that too. And um, in terms of just like your work and like your experiences, right? Being able to design these experiences and like how you think through them, like are there any examples maybe like in your work or your experience or in your advocacy 
where there are these types of challenges um, that you've addressed through design thinking? Yeah, absolutely. This is something actually that uh, grew out of my time at Intuit. I mean, this passion, just like starting to really understand what accessibility means. Um, there is a healthy tension, I would say, between you know, designing for something that is not only usable, but also beautiful. And we sometimes make sacrifices where, you know, we see something that aesthetically looks very pleasing, is mostly functional and usable for a majority of people. But at the end of the day, you may have um, minorities that can't actually consume the content. And for those, that can be very painful and honestly, pretty detrimental to a brand. So one thing that um, we focused on significantly in these past couple of years is our, our visual design. And I'll hone in on one aspect that is pretty simple. It's the color of our, our, our font, like our, our content on screen. It's just um, in the past has been a very light gray. And for the most part, depending on the size of it, I mean, it's, it's readable. But if you were, I mean, I'm actually someone who has very poor vision um, I have to honestly have my font increase a little bit sometimes. Um, I even like on when I'm watching a movie or something, I'll even put on captions so I can reinforce my, you know, just like being able to read and also hear. But anyway, um, when we test with elderly uh, consumers or even just uh, consumers who have, you know, some type of visual impairment, we often get feedback that the text is just too light. So one of the things that we've been doing across the board is just increasing the contrast ratio of our of our gray um, color and and actually making that that saturation and color um, consistent across our whole color palette. So really intensifying um, that color of whether it's a you know a blue or a green, um, just making sure that it actually passes accessibility. So you know having that four point five to one um, ratio contrast ratio is absolutely critical so that we can we can solve for a majority of our, I would say even more than a majority of our customers, as many people as we possibly can. I think that there's a huge business impact when you cannot. And also, again, as I mentioned, uh, reputational risk to the brand. Yeah, just to add to that, uh, I personally have a friend uh, who has some kind of color blindness mm -hmm. and he's also a designer. So I could uh, I could see him uh, struggle with the the basic contrast or when when some application or when some web page doesn't have uh, match the contrast ratio of uh, WCAG or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I could uh, see him uh, feeling left out uh, or uh, feeling uh, you know stupid. So it, it is all about including people. So uh, yeah, accessibility is all about doing small things like adding captions to your star uh, videos or uh, you know making sure uh, you you pass the accessibility test. So as Seep mentioned, and and uh, to take it further, uh, I read an interesting article from VentureBeat, uh, which said websites still don't provide equal access in 2020 and uh, lawsuits are increasing. So it clearly says that people are uh, raising their voices about uh, not being included. And uh, how do we address that as designers for around the world? So this is a problem that's around the world. This is not a problem that a simple a single company or single country is facing currently because everything has uh, uh, turned virtual. Uh, we have to do everything uh, from home. So how do we address this problem as designers? Yeah, I mean, this you're absolutely right. It is something that we would... You know, we, we know is an issue across the board. I mean, mm -hmm. some of the most famous celebrities have been in the spotlight. I think Kylie Jenner's makeup line or her website, you know, has definitely been one of the, those uh, <laughs> companies that have been sued for this exact issue. Um, how do we address this? It's a great question. I mean, it really starts with doing an audit of your experience, like going down literally a checklist of kind of the key aspects that make your your website or experience accessible. And it, it is those things such as, can it be um, perceived, you know, from a variety of uh, abilities, whether that's um, being able to consume the content through audio, you know, is there a screen reader um, that can read actual uh, the text that is on screen, or maybe the representation of an image, you know, that has what we call an alt text uh, tied to it. 
So things like that. I mean, there is a lot of small kind of hanging fruit that um, can be addressed. And it's going through and checking, do I have the alt text? Do I have um, ways to be able to even tab to different um, fields in a, um, in a screen? So we're not all mice users. We, we have many people that use keyboards uh, only. Um, or even just having a, um, an attached kind of device. Is it consumable through that? Um, so I would say it starts with just taking kind of a step back and looking at your experience and doing an audit, um, checking contrast ratios and, and you know, all those other things that I mentioned, like having the alt text, like kind of those basics. I would say little at a time, you know, you will pick at um, the, the aspects of your experience that are potentially not meeting WCAG uh, 2.0 accessibility guidelines. And there's a whole breadth of resources out there that um, allow you to kind of understand what are those criteria that will allow an experience to, to meet those standards. I believe w3.org is the, the web accessibility initiative does have like a set of standards and they have like a great intro page on like how you can make there's like a kind of a consumer, even if you're not someone who's like a website builder per se, but like what you were saying before about like posting images online using alt text. And if you're using like a content management system, like or like a website builder like Squarespace or I think like WordPress, you can add these sort of things there too. Um, and also to your point and also to when Sunny mentioned before about like websites not having equal access and like your example of low contrast, I think is so relevant. I think I think 2020 or like the years around 2020 have been very much like the minimalist aesthetic, like light gray and then like a slightly darker gray text and like really small. And I think um, as someone who's like a researcher and like has worked a lot with like visual designers, I certainly feel the feel of like, oh, it's really nice to see like small text and like lots of white space but it's not the most like visible like even I myself don't have like amazing vision and so I find myself like trying to zoom in but if you're looking at things from like a desktop versus like mobile even I'm like I can't always zoom in as far as I want to view your text and so I think um to your point also it's it's interesting to like how like how do we approach it right do we make it easier do we lower the barrier for people do we like do we do something kind of like publicity and like be like, all right, use this interface. And like, this is kind of like what it's like to not be able to use it because you can't see something right. Or a situational impairment kind of, kind of deal. But, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. I would add that it doesn't have to be solved in the best way possible right away. I mean, we can solve these things incrementally and that already is a step in the right direction. Um, even providing just a way, like that's what I mean by access, um, whether it's turning on a toggle switch that enables you know, higher contrast to be seen, um, that is still involving uh, or is still designed for inclusivity. Um, you know, it's, it's eventually getting to a point where the design can be consumed universally without having to take any extra measures. Um, I mean, that, that is certainly, I think, the end goal. But um, for now, in order for our experiences to be consumed more quickly um, and accessibly, like making those small little step changes um, are a huge, huge um, improvement, I would say. And also to add about, uh, you know, visually or aesthetically pleasing design that we are seeing a lot. Uh, uh, we have been uh, reading a lot of uh, posts about the new Facebook redesign uh, and saying it's not accessible or maybe the new uh, visual design trends, skeuomorphism and uh, it not being actually accessible to a lot of people. Uh, right. Yeah. And uh, now moving on, uh, I'm, I'm very curious about what is design for delight? It sounds wonderful. And, uh, you know, how are you uh, leveraging it uh, in terms of design uh, for diversity and inclusion or uh, towards focusing towards web accessibility uh, in Intuit or personally? Yeah, yeah. So Design for Delight is a methodology that we have at Intuit. Um, it is essentially like our uh, double diamond, if you will, but we've expanded it to um, include a third diamond. So we have uh, three diamonds that focus on the entire end-to-end -end design process. Um, I'll take a step back for a moment and just uh, highlight that this is something that not only designers are trained in, but every single employee at Intuit goes through. So um, whenever someone begins their full-time job, 
we have training in the beginning um, where they they go through and and actually conduct a lot of these kind of methods, whether it's you know, doing a follow me home. Uh, we call call it a follow me home because it literally is going into someone's home. Uh, I mean, pre pandemic, of course, and observing, really just seeing how a product is used. Um, we do these virtually now, but right. yes, I mean, <laughs> those kinds of things are so critical for yeah. our our employees to develop deep customer empathy. So to kind of highlight each of those triple diamond um, or diamonds in the triple diamond process, um, we start with that first um, diamond being discovery. So as I mentioned, kind of doing that um, customer research, going into someone's home, observing. We know this is a huge thing, especially in you know, CMU's contextual inquiry and H- our MHCI program. It's so critical to be able to just um, live and breathe someone's world because we obviously aren't designing for ourselves. So that is a huge first um, step in the process is just understanding the customer and not even going in with a specific problem in mind yet. So the reason why we, we use diamonds in this case is because we have going broad phases in the beginning as a diamond, you know, opens up and you go divergent. So you're looking really across all of the different possible problems you could solve in a customer space. And then as you go towards the right end of the diamond, you're converging towards a single problem that you feel your team or you know your company or whatever it might be is the right problem to go after, um, and which then you'd have a, a customer problem statement that you can all rally around. Um, that of course does not mention the solution. That's really critical. Uh, we're big fans of falling in love with our problem and not the solution. Um, and then you go into your second diamond, and that diamond is really allowing you to explore possible solutions. So again, going broad in that first half of that diamond of exploring all the different ways, you know, brainstorming concepts um, of how you can actually solve this problem that you've identified in the first phase. Uh, once you've brainstormed ideas, started sketching them, um, you could then start narrowing to a few that you may want to test or narrowing uh, through testing even, just putting these low fidelity kind of sketches or ideas out in front of actual people and getting feedback early on. And we do this so that we don't waste time building something that we may not actually um, be, it may not actually be successful at the end of it all. So once we've gone through that rigor of testing for validation of this like actual solution being a good fit for the problem, uh, we then enter that final um, stage where you're refining that solution. So really being able to bring up um, kind of the fidelity of the concept through um, you know, using more uh, visual design, like heavier, um, kind of sad, more saturated elements, um, content, really crisp content, and then also even adding elements of like motion, if you will. Um, and then really at the end of it all, determining whether that technology behind it is feasible. So that last diamond is kind of exploring, you're going broad in the various ways that you might present that final way of your of your solution, you know, that, that final... Um, Kind of deliverable, and then narrowing in on those key elements that are most usable for your your customer. Um, and the end goal, of course, is to deliver an experience that is delightful. That is really kind of the differentiator in a lot of our experiences today is just how can we uh, encourage our customers to really have fun while they're using the product and um, feel like their needs are being met, but also uh, have this tendency to want to return to this experience. So that's our overall design for delight framework. Um, It's really rooted um, in deep customer empathy, um, going broad and going narrow. And then the final principle is um, rapid iteration through customer testing, through prototyping. So that's what we call D4D. That's that's the shortened term. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And uh, could you give us any example of uh, how it could actually uh, uh, improve the web accessibility standards or, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, doing a lot of user testing is definitely useful. Mm-hmm. And uh, the very idea that uh, everyone at Intuit has to go through this basic training uh, makes me really happy as a designer. So uh, they, they become more empathetic towards, uh, uh, you know, the end user, I guess. But uh, in your consumer design group, uh, could you give us any uh, specific example or, uh, you know, specific use case where, uh, you know, that could that has uh, helped you incrementally or uh, that has changed the uh, entire uh, output in an exponential way? Yeah, I would say it starts, I mean, from 
the very beginning of the um, discovery phase of really understanding who else might be using our product. I mean, we, we have a pretty good idea based off of our customer demographics, um, but it's including as, as diverse of a set of customers that we can understand and kind of observe how they're using it so that we can ensure we're building from the beginning, you know, pathways or even um, ways to delight uh, a variety of customers from the, from the get-go. So uh, making sure that we're including them in the beginning is, is a critical piece. Um, one of our assets in our company that we, we heavily rely on um, is our resource, uh, a dedicated resource. His name is Ted Drake, and he's actually um, kind of our, um, I would say, primary resource to uh, funnel all kinds of accessibility questions. He's really our, our key uh, accessibility advocate. Um, and subject matter expert. So we also, um, during our design reviews, design process, like even just uh, going exploratory and going broad, we'll include him in these conversations. And he's been a huge, just, again, asset to our, our team so that we can ensure we're, we're thinking about you know, all different perspectives. We, we only know, you know what we don't, or we don't know what we don't know. So he's, he's been a huge help to just um, ensure that we are considering um, all kinds of people. Yeah, uh, that uh, kind of answers my question. Uh, thank you. So, uh, so and uh, coming to, you know, also how design thinking could actually help companies uh, uh, grow in terms of economy as well. Uh, I was reading this, uh, you know, fa- an article from Fast Company on uh, how introduced design thinking to boost sales by $10 million in a year. So kudos to you guys. Congrats on that. Uh, so now just switching gears and uh, yeah, I want to talk about uh, a startup you co-founded, uh, Live Offline. So uh, we are all talking about digital experiences. Uh, so we are trained to design for digital experiences, but uh, you came up with a startup that says Live Offline, as in like, uh, uh, where did you you know start with that idea and uh, what do you want to do with it at the end of the day? Yeah, so I was actually inspired to pursue this through a project that I was on at Intuit. Um, It was actually a research project. I was um, picked to go to a variety of cities to understand people outside of our comfortable bubble here in San Diego, which I thought was a phenomenal idea. I felt so lucky to be able to do this. Um, uh, The two cities that I was able to go to was Pittsburgh, which was really neat to come back to, you know, (laughs) CMU's home. Um, And then San Antonio was the other city. But as I was doing this, it wasn't so much the actual work that allowed me to get inspired to do something about our, our dependency on technology. It was really more of the side conversations I was having, whether it was on the plane or actually just like talking to people as we went out into the streets and literally asked people about their lives. You know, we talked about anything and everything from like their families to their passions, to their fears, to their finances and like what keeps them up at night. And then it was this beautiful relationship that really started to blossom from that point onward. And we're talking strangers here. So after that experience, I I connected, I remained connected to some of these people that I talked to. And it just made me think about why don't we do this normally? You know, we have just such a huge like fountain of a wealth of information, just, floating around ourselves, but we don't tap into this because we're so absorbed in our own lives. You know, we don't have ways of intersecting with people. And I was able to do this because it was part of my project. You know, I was sent out to these cities to do that. Um, But how do we actually encourage that kind of conversation to happen so that we can actually uh, leverage some of the awesome services passions, the thinking, the collaboration that are literally walking right next to us or living next door to us, you know, or even in line at the grocery store or at Starbucks or wherever. So how can we encourage that? So that was actually what um, started this whole idea of uh, could we actually break barriers through some either physical means or some some solution? You know, I, I wasn't set on any one way. And honestly, this whole experience through Live Offline has um, brought me into a variety of different you know, go broad experiences. But how can we actually encourage people to put their phones down and really start to have face-to-face conversations? So that was the impetus. 
Um, where we are today, I mean, we're deep into this pandemic that is just not going anywhere. We know that it's, it's taken a very long time to um, get back to normalcy. And we find that it's, you know, we're doing actually a listening tour. We're, we're talking to people about their struggles and understanding how are they coping? You know, are their kids seeing just lots, like a, a huge uptake in usage, uptake in usage and probably their own as well, you know, as we're constantly moving from Zoom call to Zoom call, <laughs> we're just barely having even a few minutes to take a breath of fresh air. So right now we're kind of understanding we're in that first discovery phase. We've gone through this many times, but never through a pandemic. And we're looking towards solutions where we actually can provide physical distance from your phone in a way that's actually encouraging. Um, you know, we often see a lot of um, solutions out there that are policers, um, things that time, you know, how long you're, you're on your phone. And we know that these are actually built into our, our operating systems. Um, screen time, you know, is on iOS. We've got digital well-being on Android. It's great to see those things, but we also have studied that these actually haven't changed behavior. I mean, it's, for some it has. It definitely has brought awareness, um, but we're looking to really be that next step to help create actual physical distance um, and encourage that. You know, how do we how do we almost gamify that or make it make you feel proud of actually giving yourself the time that you deserve to focus on things that you want to focus on, whether that's you know your health or connecting with your family. Um, and not just you know, seeing them in passing um, outside of meetings or you know outside of your your normal day to day. So that's where we are. We're, we're focusing right now on a physical product. We are very much. Um, I mean, one of our principles is to solve this as best as we can through um, the lack of actual like screens. You know, we we kind of think it's a, a little bit ironic to use an app to solve for, um, you know, using your, your phone less. Um, I think it's certainly, it can, it can aid it at some point, but, um, all of the solutions that we've gone uh, forward with have always been around something, um, very physical. So, um, trying to bring back that kind of analog feel, um, as much as we can. I think a lot of us are at least in that boat where we have experienced life before phones. We know what that's like and can we, you know, make that cool again, this nostalgia. Can we bring that back and, and instill that in our, in our own children's lives or just like this next generation? Yeah, uh, this very idea gives me uh, real, real joy. Uh, to be honest, uh, I tried to go on a digital detox last week and I failed immediately. Connie knows that. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I was like, why is he here? He's supposed <laughs> to be online. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I can't, I guess I'm addicted to work or I'm addicted to my devices right now. Uh, everyone is. Uh, so as designers, uh, uh, we talked to Kian in one of our episodes who works at Facebook. So I asked him what was his end goal. He was like, uh, my end goal is never to look at a computer screen again and never to work on it. So uh, maybe that's what uh, we all want to do. So optimized usage of uh, computers or, uh, you know, human computer interaction is what we need to try to achieve at the end of the day. Uh, so it's very ironic. We are using screen time. It is not working out for me so far. Uh, but uh, th this very idea is uh, something that uh, all should uh, you know look up to. So we are all uh, looking for human connections even now, you know, through Zoom calls or happy hours at the end of the day. So uh, we are not addicted to computers. We are we are addicted to content uh, that, that relates to humans at the end of the day, I guess. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I mean, we have basic human needs, right? And, and we need to still meet those. And our, our underlying mantra is not so much about completely like, getting rid of technology. You know, we are not technophobes at all. It is really understanding what you're using it for and, and whether it's becoming a tool for you, uh, which you know, we know technology has has vastly improved our civilization. Um, it's it's when it becomes the, t the the piece of technology using you, where you're completely absorbed and not even aware of you know your usage, your time, and and even the intent that you had going into it for you know in the first place. So we we're trying to strike that balance of being able to still be on it, but not being ridiculed or feeling guilty for any reason for using it. It's really finding time for yourself and recognizing that that is a priority to you know, step away and actually pursue some of your interests that, that are beyond the, you know, the world of, of phones. 
Yeah, I, I, I can totally, I can totally vibe with that. It's also just like when it comes to having so much technology, like you mentioned something about like identity um, when it comes to like our phones and like what tech we use and things like that. And I think part of it is also just like in speaking about human nature, we do I'd like to identify ourselves in certain like groups or certain like be with certain people. Like we, we say like, oh, we're designers, we're researchers. And it goes to the same thing for consumers. They're like, I'm really on Instagram a lot or I'm on Snapchat a lot or like I'm on like this platform. And so when so much of our internal identity, I think, is so dependent on technology, it becomes, I think, an even greater challenge to get like separate ourselves from it. Right. You're like, oh, if I'm not like on this platform, like what am I doing? Right. It's not that people are dumb and they don't have anything they need to do. It's that we I guess like a lot of us are being raised in a society where a lot of us have like a digital twin, basically, that exists on the Internet. And like I myself, when I was a teenager, I spent so much time online, like on Tumblr and DeviantArt, like all these like platforms like and they've been platforms where we've been able to meet online friends. I've had online friends before like the pandemic. I've had them before they were cool. Um, but uh, it's it's kind of like it's hard. And I think um, in education, like as you may know, because like you went to CMU as well. And just in general, when we do like workshops and things like that, people are becoming much more sensitive, especially because of COVID, about how to design these relationships that we have with technology right what is the limit what is the way we actually enhance instead of like hinder our own lives you know and i do think it's important to get away from screens and i think in general having this i guess like frame of mind maybe would open up people to the possibility of being able to do other things like diversity equity inclusion is obviously a huge part and we just talked about accessibility for a lot of this conversation right and so when maybe you know, maybe a very little hopeful thought, but if we become less engrossed in ourselves and maybe in our devices, could that perhaps open us up to other things that we may not have thought about, right? Whether it's not because we're selfish, but simply because there's just so much stuff on the internet, so much stuff going on, we just never had time to think about it, so. I love that. That is so powerful to, yeah, think of the time just where someday we are looking more openly at the world of what's happening around us and can see, you know, the differences that are actually around us and, and be able to, to help each other more, be connected to those people. And instead of, like you said, being so absorbed in our own little world, I think that absolutely could open the doors to more exploration and diversity and inclusion for sure. Yeah. Someday I, cr- I cross my fingers and it's certainly a hope I have for our humanity. <laughs> that's what design is for right building the better future the preferred future uh, yeah that's what we work for every day i guess uh, and uh coming to you know i come from india so uh the, the basic culture there is uh, you have to be very competitive uh you can't work in teams even uh, it took me a long time to work in teams or uh yeah you know working with a players who are as good as me or maybe you know better than me uh the power of collaboration uh it took me a lot of time to understand but uh, uh in most of your talks or in most of uh you know your work you you highlighted the, the importance of co-design or the importance of collaboration so uh, could you tell us uh, uh, how that works for you and why it is important in in the field of hci and uh, how it can create some beautiful products yeah This is something that I think as you grow in the design field, I I feel like it's something you you see more and more of like the success of design comes from a team of people. Um, You know, in in a lot of our school projects, we're usually, you know, one designer that has a focus and we bring it to the table and we might do some iteration together. Sometimes we're in our individual kind of projects too, but great things didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, We often can iterate on each other's ideas and see things that others can't see, you know, just like, as we mentioned before, in in creating a diverse team when we solve for accessibility. Um, When you do that up front, it is magic of what kinds of ideas can spark. Um, One thing that I absolutely love that we do at Intuit is a seven to one, what we call seven to one um, kind of design brainstorm. And what that means is, you individually brainstorm first ideas, like on stickies, and your first couple ideas are probably going to be really bad, just because they're they're like the most obvious <laughs> ones, you know. Um, and it takes time too to kind of like even have pause between those first few ideas, maybe go get inspired, and then start generating idea number three, four, five, six, seven, 
And by that time, when you're getting to that, that last idea, I mean, you can certainly keep going beyond that. Um, you've, you're coming up with some really wild like concepts and you're, you're not thinking about feasibility at that time. And that's completely uh, encouraged. Um, sometimes it's the craziest ideas that end up being things that we pursue, right? Like who would have thought people like Airbnb would be successful where people would actually open up their homes to strangers, right? So Super. it's... it's Exactly. What happened to stranger danger? <laughs> when you bring those ideas to the table, yeah, when you bring those ideas to the table and you have other people that are now contributing their seven ideas, then we start to really see the magic of uh, you know some aspects of someone's idea come joining forces with another, and then you're kind of building out that final concept together, or final few concepts. So that is really what I think makes um that delight happen, um, you know, coming together to bring in a, a diverse set of perspectives, coming, uh, refining that, those concepts through a critical few and then testing them and then iterating as you, you know, actually put it out in front of customers and seeing you know, the validity of it. Um, I would say beyond that, actually, sorry, what was your, there was a second part to your question, Sunny. Yeah, so I, I was, <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, I'll do it again. Yeah, so I was asking, uh, how can we leverage it uh, for web accessibility or, uh, you know, uh, how can we add this, uh, you know, uh, power of collaboration uh, to improve the standard of web accessibility around the world? Ah, okay. So you're talking more so around, um, I guess, I'm trying to think why I started down this path. There was something else that I was um, hinging towards. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Um, I'm thinking more around, I guess, yeah, collaboration and how do we get to products where we are getting accessible, more accessible, right? Yeah, I'm so sorry. I lost my train of thought for a moment and I can't recall what it was that I was going to mention. Maybe I'll add something just to add an, like an interim into it, which was sure. like, um, since this is like a conversation we're all having together, um, I I wanted to maybe say a bit about how uh, you talked about like beforehand right about how like accessibility is like the goal that we have in mind and that like there's not like one giant shove push solution that we can like just make everything accessible right like because right. society is complicated there's a lot of things happening you know capitalism etc um <laughs> and so there's um, there's an interesting paper um, from like 2016. I think Sunny showed it to me about um, making uh, d like design workshops for accessible ideation. And so you were talking about like sticky notes, putting it in the table. And so the very fact that there's a collaborative slash like participatory design that um, we should that we are doing and hopefully we'll do more in the future is also learning how to make like how to communicate the ideas that these people have and make it easier and accessible for them to communicate these ideas. Cause like with sticky notes, right? Like what about people who are not neurotypical, who need to like slow down, right? We can't like always be putting ideas on the table. And like the, even in that paper, there's an interesting talk about how like people are hard of hearing, like we're in a conversation, like all three of us and um, we're on zoom, but you guys can't see that. Um, and like, we can interrupt each other, you know, we can like talk and things like that. But if you're hard of hearing or you can't see, like how do those conversation interjections happen? Right. And so um, to your point about like, how do we make things better and how do we keep on iterating, like doing design workshops and improving the way that we even conduct that on like a super meta, like like zoom out kind of way also helps us create better products, I would think. Um, but not to detract too much from the initial conversation, but that was just what I wanted to say as well, which was, you know, improving the process also helps improve the product. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think the more that you can do that upfront of including um, a variety of perspectives that are not like, you know, everybody else's, it's just, I think it will likely result in some better way of solving it from, from, the, from the beginning. Um, and, and including them along the way, you know, continuing to test with them, um, inspiring the design and, and hopefully... Um, including others, you know, outside of those core uh, skill sets too. I think that's really um, how we start to validate that our, our concepts are becoming more and more uh, universally um, accessible. Yeah, absolutely. Because even when I did uh, user interviews uh, 
over zoom uh, with people who are deaf and hard of hearing or people uh, you know with the uh, blind and low vision users it was difficult definitely difficult because of some translation gap in between or maybe the communication was not very lucid uh, but uh, now i'm curious to uh, know about your day to day work at uh, intuit and uh, the consumer products that you have been working on over the years Yeah, I have worked on a few um, different product experiences. So I am currently on the consumer group design systems team, um, which primarily works on you know, components and patterns that are throughout our end-to-end experiences in all of our products, um, such as TurboTax, TurboTax Live, um, Mint, QuickBooks even. Um, but the other product experiences that uh, I think you may be asking about um, have stemmed anywhere from creating a whole new uh, section within our TurboTax experience called um, health insurance. So this is something that actually was a very new topic back in 2015 where we had Obamacare being a completely new in legislation and having to figure out what is the best way to account for the compliance aspects of reporting someone's healthcare. So that was a huge um, project where we had to understand a lot of what um the mindset was you know in this very politically fueled kind of climate um you know did people did people understand what the impact was to having health insurance um there was a penalty if you didn't have it depending on you know the income that you had um you know, your state there's just a lot of factors that came into play that year that made this kind of a um a very kind of spotlighted topic i would say but through working um again with like a lot of the customers outside of our four walls um we understood what that that appetite was and and whether or not this would be something challenging for our customers so um yeah that was actually one of the first projects that I had worked on and, and one of the most rewarding because of the amount of customer research that we were able to do so that was one of the experiences that I'd worked on um I'd also worked on uh kind of a similar product where um instead of well i would say it's it's outside of tech turbo tax but um the end of the experience was actually to to solve for people um that would be able to apply for benefits using their turbo tax data so at the end of it all I and mean, we have so much content like just information about our consumers right whether it's their income their family makeup um just yeah demographics in general around just where they live Um so a lot of this data can be applied to things like mortgages or even like benefit applications. So could we try and get uh more money into people's pockets by making it easier for people to apply for government benefits like getting um groceries, you know, at a discounted rate or um getting a free cell phone through a government program. So that was another experience um, that was also super rewarding because I again was able to go out into the wild and actually see how these applications were processed. I mean, we, we were able to take a trip to DC and uh see the Health and Human Services office of how like, how they physically process applications, uh paper applications and how painful that was and why a lot of Americans weren't pursuing a benefit that was rightfully theirs. And could we make this something more visible to customers at the end of our tax experience? and actually hone in on the demographic that this was uh that there that is eligible for this benefit. So that was another experience. Um I'm also working right now on a product I can't, I I can't quite talk too much about it, um but I can let you know that it's something that is uh coming up very soon um in uh <laughs> in regards to yeah uh, a partnership that we have. Um but it is again also um in a post file we call post file after they finish their taxes experience so utilizing a lot of um the d4d methods that i had discussed earlier and just again getting back into kind of our our customers mindsets of you know what is it that um they're needing and and how can we actually bring delight to them with our our offering within our suite of products so that's kind of a broad overview of the types of projects that i've worked on I and mean, we we cover a lot from um just the consumer side as well as the um now a, a new aspect to our products um the expert side of things so i don't know if you're familiar but we have also a product called TurboTax Live where customers are able to connect with a live agent um either throughout their entire exp- uh tax experience or they can also 
um, just have an agent at the end, or, or CPA rather, uh, review their taxes for accuracy. Um, so what we're trying to do now is really bring that um, level of one-on-one -on -one interaction into our other products. So having kind of this double-sided network, if you will, just like the way you have drivers and riders in Uber, we have a network of experts like CPAs, and we have a network of DIY tax you know, consumers. So um, we have a whole product that we've created internally for our expert experience where they can actually take on calls. I mean, they're, they're literally employees at the end of the day, you know, earning their paycheck as a um, service provider to our end customers. Um, so how do we create an interface for them almost as if they were their own kind of customer support agent? Yeah, so yeah, there's this... a variety of consumer product uh, experiences that add into it. It's pretty fun. And uh, it sounds very important as well, uh, you know, considering uh, healthcare and uh, economy are uh, the, the two pillars of, uh, you know, people's day-to-day -day lives and uh, the, the way you provide information uh, digitally or, or the way you your design interfaces is uh, uh, very important. Uh, but, uh, you know, as I would like to quote Tony Stark from uh, Avengers, uh, this podcast has to come to an end. Uh, so I'm asking this question uh, that I'm curious about. Uh, so uh, you you have been a dancer, so you you want to connect with nature. Uh, that's how you started your startup. Uh, so you have traveled around the world, uh, and uh, you have worked with uh, Intuit for so many years. You studied uh, computer science. You have been helping people through your workshops and uh, design talks. Uh, if you want to just look back and connect the dots, uh, so all your personal processes or uh, all your, uh, you know, day-to-day -day hobbies, uh, outside work, uh, are they helping you in terms of your design work? And uh, if so, how are they helping you? I, I mean, I, I definitely think so because uh, uh, there is this uh, famous uh, quote from Steve Jobs where he says, I get my best ideas when I'm on uh, walks alone uh, or something like that. So uh, I'm curious and also we ask all the people who, all the guests who come to our podcast to give one piece of uh, wisdom to all the nomads around the world uh, who are kind of, uh, you know, not uh, ready to come out of their comfort zones, who are not sure if they can explore something like HCI, something very niche. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'll start with the question around, you know, how do you, I guess, get inspired doing the things that are outside of your you know, core work? And I, I see a lot of different kind of elements in the hobbies that I, I partake in, whether it's Zumba and kind of being that community um, or even just playing with my daughter. I think there's a lot of things that just get simplified when I'm in that kind of interaction with her. Just anything from like, how does she actually perceive instruction or um, even just like react to how I'm playing with her. It is the most magical thing I would say is to, to see a human being right in front of you change their abilities because of the way that you're providing you know, this, this nurturing experience for them. So in a way, I feel like that's an oversimplified version of us designing for you know, a, a consumer that may not know all the context. You know, just like children have a very, they're coming in with sometimes just days worth of experiences. Like literally you can count the days. It's, it's only been a little over a year. So I, I think that really helps me kind of think about um, bringing it back to basics. You know, it's kind of how I started this conversation of accessibility. How do we understand our customers better and, and be able to empathize with them to provide an experience that makes sense to them in a way that they want to consume it. So that's kind of one, one point of inspiration is, is really just like taking that time to step away and, and play with my daughter or even just observing um, how those kinds of interactions take place. Um, I'd say the other aspects too, just community is a huge part of my life. Um, being in like the Zumba community, I, I mentioned that a little bit of just watching instructors of how they're adapting to this current pandemic. It's been so inspiring. Like, how do you build um, a community that that allows for the content to still be accessible um, and still harness a, a nurturing environment? You know, it's very difficult to do that when we're not able to be physically together. 
Um, and it's now re- resorting on technology to be able to solve for that. You know, how can we actually have the infrastructure to sign up for classes, to be able to have Zoom ready and, or, you know, even just the, the audio piped in. Like I, I took a class yesterday and I was just so impressed with the seamlessness in which I was still able to take a class that I used to do every Saturday morning, um, go down to the studio, see a, a room filled, like 50 or so people watching an instructor. I mean, I can now have that same content, if not better, because I can do it in the comfort of my own home with my daughter, who, who at the time when I was first starting Zumba, after I had had my, my daughter, I couldn't bring her with me because the sound was just way too loud. Um, and, and so in a way, I felt like I, I couldn't participate anymore. I needed to wait until really like she was older. I even bought headphones for her that potentially she could wear them you know, in the studio, but that she wasn't keeping those on. So it's, it's finding creative ways to solve for you know, constraints, I think, that, are, that is ultimately making our world a better place. Like, I would hope that after this pandemic is over, we can still consume content in this alternate way. I think that's really what makes our world a better place and what, how design plays such a huge role in, in some of the biggest innovations, right? A lot of us are so used to using like voice dictation or, you know, speaking to our smartphones, like these things preceded this technology when, when um, people, res- you know, relied on this type of technology to, to actually have their basic interactions. Uh, same thing with like closed captioning. I mean, this kind of stuff, it, even like uh, ramps, you know, something as simple as a, a handicap uh, wheelchair accessibility ramp. Um, a lot of times, some of the best innovations are, are, are things that have um, been created because they were solving for um, those who were kind of in the more of the minority um, population, but are becoming more widespread solutions. So yeah, all of this to say, I, I think I seek a lot of inspiration from communities and just observing how to connect those participants in a way that is um, engaging, nurturing, and really constantly evolving so that we can meet their ever-changing needs. So as far as a piece of advice for designers or aspiring designers, I would say it has to be something that I recently heard in a workshop. Actually, it was around unlearning racism um, at Intuit. And this quote actually is from Theodore Roosevelt. Um, It's from the arena, but this is kind of a simplified version of it. I wrote it down, actually, as something that I really wanted to keep with me, and it's about vulnerability. The quote is, if you're going in the arena, you're going to fail. And again, this is a, a simplified version of the a full, full quote from Theodore Roosevelt, but the intent of this is that when you're trying to do something courageous, as you are by speaking up in a room full of uh, open ears and lots of opinions, it's okay to fail. It's okay to be out there and not always sound well put together. Maybe you might have a conflicting opinion with somebody else. And, you know, it's the critics that are on the sidelines that actually can't, can't fight back. You know, they don't, they don't have the right to fight back. They need to be in that arena with you. And so it's okay to be in that moment of um, fear and also knowing that it might lead to failure. Um, but as long as you're courageous and putting yourself out there and being vulnerable, it will lead to a better place. It will lead to open conversations happening and, and you know, making us all grow together. Um, and, and overall, at the end of it, I mean, ultimately providing a, an environment where we are able to be comfortable with one another, to trust each other's voices, that we can do the best work of our lives and ultimately um, produce that together in a collaborative environment. So that is my advice is to put yourself out there and be courageous, knowing that it will likely end up in failure first. But as you continue to do that, it will strengthen all of us, or, you know, all the people around you um, and ultimately result in um, the best design that we can possibly put out there. Thank you so much, Seep. That was amazing message, and uh, you. We have been talking about some really important issues, yet uh, you know, and some very creative solutions as well. Some something like D four D, or uh, something like uh, web accessibility and why it matters, and uh, connecting with communities and how it helps our design process. Uh, we are gonna leave links to all the things that we talked about in the description as well. 
also this conversation that we're having, you know, it doesn't end right here. So if you also want to connect with Seep, we'll have her LinkedIn and anything else that um, we have for you in the description as well. But thank you so much for being here today with us. Seep, and thank you for everyone for listening today. Thanks so much, both Sunny and Connie, for having me on this Nomads um, podcast. I'm super thrilled to have been able to spend this time with you and to give back to this community. This is Sunny. This is Connie. Until next week, signing off for now. Bye. Bye. <laughs> All right.